I think your case and my case are somehow connected. It's Fleur de Lis again. Fleur de Lis? Yeah. Whatever you desire. Porno. High class whores cut to look like movie stars. Who knows what else? Reynolds, the kid that got killed, was involved. So's Pierce Patchett. The millionaire? Yeah, I think we should go talk to him. First, I want to brace Stump on Otto. Want an autograph? Write to MGM. Since when do two-bit hoods and hookers give out autographs? Just say to me, LAPD, sit down. Who in the hell do you think you are? Dad, take a walk, honey, before I haul your ass downtown. You are making a large mistake. Get away from our table. Shut up. A hooker cut to look like Lana Turner is still a hooker. Hey! She just looks like Lana Turner. She is Lana Turner. What? She is Lana Turner. How was I supposed to know? If your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 303, L.A. Confidential. And this is listener request number 34, courtesy of Matt. Oh, how about that? I finally got... (laughs) You finally got one after all this time. (laughs) Hell of a business model. High-end call girls that resemble actresses. What a world to live in. Yeah, well, believe it or not, it wasn't totally invented for the purposes of this film. But there's not really a lot of confirmation that it did exist, but there's always been rumor. Mm. And it's mentioned in a couple of people's books and biographies, including, I think, Mickey Rooney. Okay. Who made a passing reference to something like that in his biography. It's something that people have mentioned, but yeah, I don't know that there's a lot of documentation on it i don't know but anyway la confidential what a movie matt not this matt yeah matt and our thinking sort of lined up here so we were able to get to his listener request right off the bat here in february if you want to know when your listener request is coming out of the free ones from last year listen to the godfather episode i don't have that information in front of me but we're kind of spreading them out over the course of the first half of the year or so more on the new system for listener requests in a moment all right but let's run down all the usual info please 
Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod, where you can communicate with us directly, whether it's involving a listener request or a sticker request, which we will send to you for free or whatever. You just want to say, hey, love the show, or hey, that movie you did sucks, or whatever. <laughs> whatever you want to say. We do have some of those. You can reach us at Greatest Pod on Twitter. Please make sure you're subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Never miss an episode. Please tell your friends about the show. Spread the word for us so we don't have to. That would be great. We really count on it. I just don't want to do it. And if you have Letterboxd or would be interested in that, you can find us at Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on Letterboxd. So... Everyone's been waiting, people beating down our doors. When are you going to set up this <laughs> payment system for the new listener request? Never been anything that's happened that the world has reacted less to. <laughs> well, it was a lot of effort yes. today that I had to put in. I don't really know anything uh-huh. about this stuff. When we started this podcast, we didn't really even want to do a Twitter. Mm-hmm. We talked about not doing it for a few months. And then finally we gave in. I, I don't even know how we would still be doing a podcast if we didn't have Twitter because that's the only way we've confirmed that people actually listen to the show <laughs> other than just these random download numbers. Right. But anyway, we weren't really planning on any of this stuff. We even made jokes about doing Patreon for months. I don't know why we got so much mileage out of that joke, but it was something that was brought up a lot. I, you know, we usually fall back on the same four or five jokes and <laughs> Ride those for several years. Yeah, the idea of us asking for money seems so absurd. And it still does in Absolutely. some ways. But we didn't want to kill off the idea of listener requests altogether. So we've set up a tip jar on Twitter. That would be the easiest way. However, mm-hmm. unless you're just giving us a donation, which you are free to do of any amount, and that would be great, and we thank you for that. And please, by all means, whatever amount you feel comfortable with, that's fine. But... If you're giving us money for a listener request, $50 for a movie up to two hours and ten minutes, $75 up to three hours, and then negotiated for anything over that, please reach out on Twitter, either through DMs or tweets or whatever, and discuss it with us first. Don't just rush into it and send the money over all willy-nilly before this is talked about. For various reasons, scheduling... There's a few movies we're definitely saving, and I will say, just save your money. We will do this eventually. There's a few movies we just will never do. Probably not, but I'm talking narrative features. Please no documentaries or anything weird. Think about what we do on the show and what would work and make sense for our format and what we try to accomplish. But whatever. You can communicate with us on Twitter first, but yes, I... Did set up a Patreon, did not realize Patreon was only recurring payments, not one-time payments, so I got rid of that, although it does still exist, but it's not connected to the Twitter anymore. Then I tried Venmo, could not get that to connect to Twitter through the (laughs) tip jar thing, deleted that. Yeah. Now we're on to Cash App. That's what we're using on the tip jar on Twitter. If you don't have a Cash App and don't want to set one up, but you would still like to do a listener request or whatever, then reach out through DMs and I'll give you my personal PayPal or something like that and we'll figure that out. But Cash App's really easy. Uh If you want, you could probably just set it up, send the money, and then delete your Cash App account or whatever. Whatever you want to do. But like I said, if you're doing a listener request and not just a donation for 
a certain amount of money just out of the kindness of your heart, then please reach out first so we can discuss it. We can confirm how much it's going to be. We're going to use the official IMDb running times for the movies, if there's any confusion over (laughs) that. But, yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I commend you for your resiliency in getting this all set up. Listen, when I get one of those, we've emailed you with a confirmation number so that you can go back to this app and put I mean, that's like, I'm on the verge of a complete emotional breakdown in those moments. Yeah, I know. I hated every second of this. (laughs) Our cash tag, as it's called. Right. I don't really know anything about Cash App. I don't know if you're supposed to save the dollar sign or that's implied, but our cash tag is dollar sign greatest moments. Or, like I said, we can go through PayPal in the messages, whatever. So any questions, just tweet at us. When I tested it, I just typed in greatest moments and your full name came up. Yeah. Greatest moments, whatever. But if you Mm -hmm. use the link through it, if you already have a Cash App, it'll take you right to it. And then if you have to set one up, then yeah, you might have to circle back or whatever but just talk to us first if there's any confusion what if someone sent like a shitload of money to end the show it would depend <laughs> how much it was <laughs> yeah could there be an amount that just <laughs> yes of course will you guys just stop doing this hundred bucks and we're done <laughs> oh, i'm kidding mm-hmm. it would take a little bit more yeah it's negotiable though Oh, for sure. Anything's negotiable. It's on the table. Yeah, if you're interested in a TV show episode, anything that's out of the ordinary, not a narrative feature film, that can be negotiated through DMs, whatever, on Twitter. We'll work something out. We'll try to accommodate, even if it has to be a give us a second, if it's something short or Mm -hmm. whatever. We'll figure something out. All right. So thanks to Matt for this listener request. As I mentioned in the Godfather episode, he aligned with our thinking a little bit he, he provided a full list and i know that we are probably going to do a couple other ones from that list at some point love it so dreamless show right here thanks matt <laughs> we really appreciate you stick with the show and we'll get to some of those other ones as well so let's jump into la confidential 1997 directed by curtis hansen screenplay by hansen and brian helgeland based on the novel of the same name by james elroy it's the third in his L.A. Quartet series of mm-hmm. books, which is four books that began with The Black Dahlia, I believe, and oh. I think that's the only one I've actually read. Is De Palma's Black Dahlia movie based off that novel? Yeah. Okay. The Black Dahlia from 87, The Big Nowhere in 88, L.A. Confidential 1990, White Jazz 1992. They're all set in the late 1940s through the late 50s in Los Angeles. The budget for the film was $35 million. Hmm. The box office, $126.2 million. It does have one of those titles that you do feel like is just destined to be a hit. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning two. It won for Best Supporting Actress Kim Basinger oh. and Best Adapted Screenplay. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. It lost to Titanic in all of those seven categories. That's a shame. If you would like to watch the film, it is streaming for free, but in some lesser-known apps now, one of which is called Plex, which you have to watch with commercials. Which I watched it on, and I have to tell you, the commercials volume way up. 
I was yeah. having to like turn the volume way down during the commercials. They were the same commercials every time. There is another app that it's playing called Zumo Play, X-U-M-O. I did download both of these apps and Whoa. test them. Okay. So they do both play. Zumo started without a commercial, so I was wondering if there was no commercials. It might be one of those bootleg apps that gets taken down after a while. It's mm-hmm. just putting things on for free. Right. Who knows? But yes, you can watch it for free, or you can rent it off of Vudu, but apparently not Amazon. Yeah, that was where I tried first. The film tells the story of a group of LAPD officers in 1953 and the intersection of police corruption and Hollywood celebrity. The title is a reference to the 1950s scandal magazine Confidential, portrayed in the film as Hush Hush. Mm -hmm. Confidential was a magazine published quarterly from December 1952 to August 1953, and then bi-monthly until it ceased publication in 1978. It was founded by Robert Harrison and is considered a pioneer in scandal, gossip, and expose journalism. Ah, little Perez Hilton prequel. The title of the film, as well as Elroy's novel, is also based on a popular series of books by Jack Late and Lee Mortimer, New York Confidential from 1948, Chicago Confidential 1950, Washington Confidential 1951, and USA Confidential 1952, which purported to expose the dirty underside of the title locales, focusing specifically on corruption, organized crime, and sex, the three elements of the crime plot in L.A. Confidential. As I said, a magazine named Confidential, fictionalized in the novel and the film as Hush Hush, began publication in December of 52 and took its name from that same book series but focused largely on celebrity gossip. And then there were some other things as well that came out that sort of used that same title format, Kansas City Confidential and School Confidential and different things of that nature. But none of those approximated the same idea as those original things quite the same way as L.A. Confidential did. Both Hanson and Helgeland were fans of Elroy's work prior to making L.A. Confidential, Hansen, being a little more established in Hollywood, was hired to direct, but Helgelin, relatively inexperienced, was not initially hired to adapt the novel. So Helgelin tracks down Hansen while he's making The River Wild and lobbies to be a collaborator. They shared an admiration for Elroy's writing and also had similar ideas on how to proceed, so it ends up being a match. They work on the script for years, with Hansen turning down directing gigs and Helgelin writing several drafts for no pay. Wow. Before any of that, though, the project was pitched twice to television. First, producer David L. Walper wanted to produce the project as a miniseries, and later it went into development as a weekly series by HBO. Oh, yeah. A very poorly executed pilot that starred Kiefer Sutherland as a completely unrecognizable Jack Vincennes was produced, but the series was not picked up afterwards. You can see this working as a miniseries, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because they actually trimmed out a lot of the plots from the book. I think the book might have had like eight main plots, and they trimmed it down to three or something like that. Yet it still remains somewhat complicated. Yeah, and you sort of have to take the leaps sometimes Mm -hmm. with the characters of how does the heroine connect. Right. Then it all is kind of explained under one big umbrella at the end where you're like, oh, well... Smith was doing all of this because he was trying to be the new Mickey Cohen. Yeah. So that 
accounts for every part of it. You're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, he was just trying to be a crime boss. <laughs> Hansen pushed for three main characters, but the studio wanted it simplified. It was further complicated by Hansen's push for relative unknowns in two of the three parts, Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe, who at that point in time were not known in America. I know. Weird to think of those two as unknowns. Although Guy Pierce is sort of an interesting dude to discuss his career. Yeah, there's a lot of moments where it seems like he's completely off the radar and then he'll just be back all of a sudden. Right. <laughs> Although you could say the same thing for Crow. Although yeah, it's true. more of like a downward trajectory yeah. from being at the absolute top of the mountain. Right. Hansen did eventually get the blessing to cast who he wanted. According to Guy Pierce on the DVD commentary, he attended a James Elroy one-man show in his native Melbourne, Australia, while the film was in pre-production. Pierce notes that during a Q&A session following Elroy's performance, an audience member asked if any of Elroy's books would ever be adapted into film. Elroy replied that not only was L.A. Confidential in pre-production, but two Australian natives, Pierce and Crow, were cast in the film. The audience erupted into laughter, thinking that Elroy was playing a wry joke on the audience by randomly naming two local actors and claiming they were cast in a big-budget Hollywood film. Pierce, who was sitting in the audience, was mortified. (laughs) It was only a year later that the audience learned that Elroy was, in fact, telling the truth. The cast was then rounded out with some more known performers, Spacey, Kim Basinger, Danny Danny DeVito, and that helped... The studio accept the fact that two of the three leads were going to be guys that America didn't really know yet. I do understand that being a tough sell. Yeah, especially with a $35 million budget. Right. But it just goes to show you it's all a crapshoot. You can have the biggest cast with the biggest names and the movie tanks and no one cares. Right. And then you have a movie with some unknowns and leads and it's a huge hit. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. There's all kinds of factors that go beyond just who the stars of the film are. Right. To give his cast and crew points and counterpoints to capture Los Angeles in the 1950s, Hansen held a mini film festival showing one film a week, The Bad and the Beautiful, because it epitomized the glamorous Hollywood look in a lonely place, mm. because it revealed the ugly underbelly of Hollywood glamour. Don Siegel's The Lineup and Private Hell 36 for their lean and efficient style, and Kiss Me Deadly because it was so rooted in the futuristic 50s, the atomic age. Hansen and the film's cinematographer Dante Spinotti studied Robert Frank's 1958 photographic book The Americans and felt that the influence of his work was in every aspect of the film's visuals. Spinotti wanted to compose the shots of the film as if he was using a still camera and suggested Hansen shoot the film in the Super 35 widescreen format with spherical lenses, which, in Spinotti's opinion, conveyed the feel of a still photo. There's a lot of interesting things going on in the film when you factor in just the general style. I'm always a big fan of well-done historical fiction, which blends together real people, real events, real things, but then crafts a fictional story around them. You could say that the most extreme version would be some of Tarantino's later works right? where he flat out changes history. But that's a little bit different because I think historical fiction, when it's done in James Elroy's style, is basically, it could be true. 
Yes, because yes. it doesn't really change history. It just interacts with it. It's almost like they're introducing us to a part that we just didn't see. Yeah. Although I guess in some sense you could argue that the Black Dahlia is sort of closer to the Tarantino side of flat out changing history. True. Or making it your own. But in this case specifically, it's something that, though not true, it could be and not anything would necessarily be different because it doesn't really affect actual historical figures, I guess. They're just parts of it. They're on the like periphery of it. Yeah. But yeah, that's really cool. It's sort of the last great classic noir film. Okay, yeah. It doesn't really fit under what you would consider to be, I guess, neo-noir, but it's just in that traditional sense of a noir film. It's sort of a detective story. It takes a while for it to come together because at a certain point in the film, there's like completely different focuses. You're not really sure where that final focus is going to be. Yeah, it's tough to get your bearings and also figure out who you're like rooting for. Which yeah. I guess changes throughout the movie. Well, that's a trademark of Elroy's fiction that the characters aren't generally likable and yeah. it takes you a while to relate to them and warm up to them. Because I do have a little piece written for the end when we get to the end of the plot where we're going to talk about how each of the character grows and changes, but even still, there are unlikable things about the two living leads that remain to the end. In fact, they can't seem to shake everything off of them. And in one case with Bud White, it almost takes like a... A turn for the worse. Yeah, especially by today's standards. Uh I don't know that it was necessarily viewed the same way in the time period in which it's set, unfortunately. Okay. Right. Now, I'm not going to make some weird case about 1997, but in terms of like the early 50s, mm-hmm. I'm People just being different honest. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> sure. that's just the way it, it kind of was. Right. But yeah, they're not generally likable characters. It takes a while to figure out whose side you're on, what's happening exactly, because for so long, there's like this build up to the Night Owl killings and then. It feels almost like a climactic moment when they save that girl. I know. And then there's so much of the runtime left. Yeah, and that's just its own little piece. And then there's all these different other things that all connect. And I think they do like a pretty cool job of tying it all together in a way that makes sense and that you can roll with as the audience. Because there's a lot of disparate pieces going in all all different directions. There's heroin, there's dead cops, there's prostitutes that look like movie stars, there's murders going on there's mm-hmm. that montage of mickey cohen's people being killed at the beginning yeah there's all these different things you're like what i don't understand what's going on and then there's the piece with jack vincennes and simon baker's character oh right yeah all that stuff and you're like what does that have to do with anything and then it all comes back to this corruption and i know it's really hard to stick with where you think it's going because even the beginning with the mickey cohen stuff it sort of feels like Mickey Cohen's going to be like back in the mix at some point. No, it's almost as if Elroy is just taking a historical thing that happened and being like, well, this is the playground I'm going to create. Right. So when he goes to prison, what happens in, in terms of the power structure in the Los Angeles underworld mm-hmm. in that time period? And now what happens if it involves the police and police corruption and blackmail schemes and murder and drugs yep. and prostitution and porno and all these different things swirled together yeah sounds overwhelming in my opening notes here i actually have a double swirl Mm -hmm. underlined yeah we'll get to that in a second (laughs) 
Come to Los Angeles. The sun shines bright, the beaches are wide and inviting, and the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see. There are jobs aplenty, and land is cheap. Every working man can have his own house, and inside every house, a happy all-American family. You can have all this, and who knows, you could even be discovered. Become a movie star, or at least see one. Life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on Earth. <laughs> That's what they tell you anyway. Because they're selling an image. They're selling it through movies, radio, and television. In the hit show Badge of Honor, the LA cops walk on water as they keep the city clean of crooks. Yep, you'd think this place was the Garden of Eden. But there's trouble in paradise. And his name is Meyer Harris Cohen, Mickey C to his fans, local LA color to the nth degree, and his number one bodyguard, Johnny Stompanato. Mickey C's the head of organized crime in these parts. He runs dope, rackets, and prostitution. He kills a dozen people a year. And the dapper little gent does it in style. And every time his picture's plastered on the front page, it's a black eye for the image of Los Angeles. Because how can organized crime exist in the city with the best police force in the world? Something has to be done, but nothing too original, cause hey, this is Hollywood. What worked for Al Capone would work for the mixture. Mr. Cohen, you're under arrest. Non-payment of federal income tax. But all is not well. Sending Mickey up has created a vacuum. And it's only a matter of time before someone with balls of brass tries to fill it. Remember, dear readers, you heard it here first. Off the record, on the QT, and very hush, hush. It opens with Danny DeVito as Sid Hudgens, managing editor of the gossip rag Hush Hush, providing us with the opening narration. Gangster Mickey Cohen is imprisoned for tax evasion, creating a vacuum in the power dynamic of the L.A. underworld. Cohen, getting locked up, causes the war for control of the drug trade in this story. He was a real-life Los Angeles mobster from the late 30s until his death in 1976. After two imprisonments for tax evasion, he was a small-time hood who joined forces with Bugsy Siegel, who we talked about a little bit oh, yeah. in the Godfather episode, when Siegel came to L.A. to run the rackets. After Siegel's murder in 1947, Cohen took over the rackets that Bugsy had built up, including labor union shakedowns at the studios, drug trafficking, gambling, and prostitution. He was so hated by the police that he was constantly arrested for any crime, big or small. He was once arrested for using foul language on the street. Wow. As shown in the movie, he was eventually imprisoned for income tax evasion and spent nearly 10 years in prison. After his release, he was semi-retired from the rackets and lived off of his wealth, remaining a colorful character in Los Angeles until his death in 1976. There's a little bit of historical context Although, as you said, he doesn't actually factor in all of that much, other than his absence factors in. Right. But they give you little bits of what's going on with 
his underlings, I guess, and by what's going on, I mean them being killed off. Well, yeah, that's the montage pretty early in the film. Right. Yeah, it's a double swirl. Yeah, there you go. Elroy swirls together real-life people and fictional characters, a blend of historical reality and noir fantasy, but also, from a high-level perspective, Los Angeles is the perfect backdrop for the second swirl, the mixture of police and gangsters and Hollywood glitz, sex and violence. Those are the two things, the double swirl. Right, okay. (laughs) I'm really trying to get that off the ground. I'm following. The story takes place essentially in Los Angeles, 1952. Three, although I'm not sure the beginning might be oh, yeah. 1952. And when it starts off, you're like, oh, here we go, another alternative Christmas movie. Yeah, it does take place at Christmas at the beginning. Bud White, played by Russell Crowe, is a plainclothes officer, a man obsessed with punishing men who abuse women. Mm-hmm. His own mother was beaten to death by his father. There's a nice little Christmas vignette to kick off the picture where he is rescuing a woman yes. getting beat up by her husband, and then he beats the shit out of this dude. <laughs> right. They're introducing this as like an endearing quality of his that he's doing these things, but he does seem like a ball of rage. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's his whole thing. Mm-hmm. He's taking out this anger from his past on right. people in the present. Sort of a vigilante-style guy although mocked a little bit by the other cops who do not give a shit about women being beaten. It is weird, though, because it kind of seems like he's always going out of his way to do this. Yeah. It's not part of whatever jobs they're on. No. I don't know how he finds these people. I guess in the 50s, if you just drove around with your windows down. (laughs) But yeah, you see this fucking guy. Yeah. Now, I know in real life, Russell Crowe is actually not that tall. And in this movie, he's really not that big yet. But still... Right. You see this angry looking dude yeah. knocking on your door after you've been hitting your wife. I love that this guy comes out and he thinks he's gonna like fight him. I know. <laughs> he just gets beat up immediately. <laughs> and handcuffed to his own porch. Yeah. Embarrassing. Crow modeled his performance after another Godfather reference, Sterling Hayden. Oh. Although in the killing. Yeah. Okay. In the Godfather, but still. A couple of other people who were mentioned in consideration, Michael Madsen and Mel Gibson. This does sort of seem like a movie Michael Madsen would show up in. But not as one of the leads. No. And I could definitely see Mel Gibson doing this. Yeah. But then you'd have two canceled people in the cast. (laughs) It also seems like a different tone to me if Mel Gibson's in it. Yeah. I could see him doing the rage and stuff, but there would almost be a little bit more sentimentality or something to it at the end. I, I don't know. He does have some unhinged performances out there through his filmography. Definitely. And maybe like performances in real life yeah but to be fair yeah. remember didn't russell crowe throw, like beat somebody up with a phone or something one time i do believe that there's been some stories yeah it seems like he's had some moments sergeant jack vincennes played by kevin spacey oh yeah he is a narcotics detective who moonlights as a technical advisor on a television show called badge of honor i was getting a little uh bigfoot bjornson vibes from inherent vice a little bit yeah, yeah. It's a TV police drama series starring fucking Lloyd Braun from Seinfeld. Oh. (laughs) His real name is Matt McCoy, and he was also in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Oh, yeah. So he must have been an actor that... He was a Hanson guy. Hanson liked. Vincennes loves that role, Mm -hmm. embraces it entirely. He is essentially a movie star among the cops, 
I did appreciate that early on. There is a quote from Vincennes that says, America isn't ready for the real me. That's right. And I was like, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's elephant in the room it right now. Look, mm-hmm. we know what the deal is with Kevin Spacey. This is not that podcast. We're not diving into all of the canceled reasons that people have and different things. We are going We'd to have be... to do that every episode. Yeah, it's the way the world is now. You're all adults, probably, so look it up for yourself if you don't know, and you can make your own decisions about whatever, but we're not really that place to go through all of that stuff, because we are going to be doing movies with Army Hammer, Kevin Spacey, movies directed by Roman Polanski, maybe Shia LaBeouf in the mix, other people that get their own controversies. It's going to happen, and it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. We already probably talked about this in American Beauty. And I know we did seven as well. Spacey was like a huge actor for like I know. 15 years. There's going to be he a lot of stuff. He was in a ton of hits. Hansen wanted him to model his character a little bit more after Dean Martin, which was a surprise to Spacey, who was expecting more of a William Holden style oh, yeah. performance. That's what I would think, too. I can't remember the movie. I'm not a big Dean Martin guy, but there was one yeah. specific role that Hansen had in mind, I guess. Okay. But yeah, I think I gotta tell it you goes that. without saying that Spacey is awesome in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Because he was great. He was a great actor. Right. A little less on the charm, though, from him. In this movie? In general. I don't know what you mean. I don't know. I just never thought of him as a charm guy. Charming, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily use that word. James Elroy described Kevin Spacey's performance of Jack Vincennes as, quote, some of the best self-loathing I've ever seen on screen. And that's sort of the vibe you get. There's the veneer of this happening Hollywood hotshot cop, Mm -hmm. but you get the feeling that he has trouble looking at himself in the mirror, trouble sleeping at night. Oh, yeah. He's not completely pleased with who he really is. And that comes through. And I do think of the three main characters, he makes sort of the most profound change where he's pushed by Exley. Exley's never, like, bad. He's just annoying and self-righteous and also sort of phony. And kind of gross in the beginning. Yeah. But not downright bad. Right. His priorities are a little weird for how he thinks. There's a little bit of conflict between, like, this idea that he does things by the book and he's, like, a good cop. But he's also, but he also s- very motivated by moving forward in his right. career. And he seems kind of sleazy. Slimy. A little bit, yeah. yeah. But in a different way. Not like a James Woods way. <laughs> Not even in a Vincennes way. Yeah, yeah. Who takes payouts and bribes and right. things of that nature. But Vincennes makes a profound change because he's pushed by Exley at one point where he asks him, why did you originally want to be a cop? And Vincennes is like, I don't even remember. Yeah. And he kind of, at that moment, realizes that he is so far off the path and then decides to actually be a real cop, which of course costs him his backfires. life. <laughs> it backfires yeah. immediately. Right. It <laughs> the is moral f- of the story is just take your payouts and shut up. It is funny the alliances that come to be in this movie because they're very unexpected. People end up teaming up that you're like, these two are never going to team up. And it happens. Sid Hudgens tips Vincennes on celebrity criminal activity so that he can make High-profile arrests that will feature in Hush Hush, the beginning of the film. They bust a young actor named Matt Reynolds, played by another Australian, Simon Baker. I guess I should clarify, Russell Crowe is not actually Australian. He is from New Zealand. Mm. And Guy Pearce 
was born in England to a father from New Zealand, but then both of them, I think, grew up in Australia. Okay. Simon Baker is Australian. Oh. He is the young actor who gets busted with drugs and a prostitute. Right. Who is she supposed to be? Can't remember. Is she Susan Lefferts or no? No, she's not. She's supposed to be one of the blondes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she's supposed to be Marilyn Monroe or Jane Mansfield or whoever, but she's supposed to be a because she's blonde. Yeah, right. That's where they first find the the card, the Fleur de Lis. Yes. So she is a part of it, but I don't know who what actress she's supposed Mm -hmm. to be. It's kind of like that scene in Pulp Fiction where they're trying to guess who the lookalikes are. Finally, we meet LAPD Sergeant Edmund Exley, played by Guy Pierce, who is determined to live up to the reputation of his father, famed detective Preston Exley, who was killed by an unknown assailant whom Edmund secretly nicknamed Rolo Tomasi. Yes. His prototype for the guy who gets away with it. So we don't know that information right off the bat, but I think it's important to start setting up the Rolo Tomasi (laughs) thing now. Building that in. Yeah, people constantly commenting on the fact that he needs to lose the glasses and i agree i don't think this look is it's not fit for a detective certainly not a lieutenant detective wow yeah i'm here for it glasses slander i'm wearing glasses right now (laughs) yeah well you're not a detective despite how much i pitch that we should be private investigators there's an early interaction with precinct captain dudley smith played by james cromwell that tells you everything you need to know not only about exley's character yeah but also the environment in which he's trying to flourish. I saw the test results on the lieutenant's exam. First out of 23. What'll it be then? Patrol division, internal affairs, what? I was thinking detective bureau. Edmund, you're a political animal. You have the eye for human weakness, but not the stomach. You're wrong, sir. Would you be willing to plant corroborative evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty in order to ensure an indictment? Dudley, we've been over this. Yes or no, Edmund? No. Would you be willing to beat a confession out of a suspect you knew to be guilty? No. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back in order to offset the chance that some lawyer... No. Then, for the love of God, don't be a detective. Stick to assignments where you don't have to make those kind of choices. Dudley, I know you mean well. But I don't need to do it the way you did. Or my father. At least get rid of the glasses. I can't think of a single man in the Bureau who wears them. Essentially, he wants to advance his career, but Smith is always resistant to it because he doesn't think Exley will do what it takes. Right. Beat confessions out of people, Mm -hmm. kill the bad guy if he's going to get away with it. Things that he eventually will do. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Setting the stage. Matthew McConaughey evidently turned down the part. Oh, wow. He would have been great in it. Yeah. It would have been different, and it would have completely changed his career right. trajectory. No need for a reconnaissance because Maybe he just, not. Yeah, never would have left it. Although by 97, he hadn't quite fallen into only rom-coms. Sure. That feels like something that was like a 99 to 2010 yeah. thing, right. and he finally like kicked out of it in 2011. But yeah. While at a liquor store... Bud encounters Lynn Bracken, played by Kim Basinger. Yeah, wearing this weird winter nun outfit. Well, she's cold. Yeah. (laughs) It was the 50s. Yeah, I'm here for it. Basinger, I don't think, had been in a movie in like three or four years leading up to this. When you go through some of these actresses' IMDb pages, there are certain ones who came to 
success in the 80s that when you look at their IMDb's there's these huge gaps and you realize that they weren't in that many things mm-hmm. I think it probably started with Goldie Hawn who I know started in like the late 60s through the 70s but you're always blown away she's like not in that many movies and takes these huge gaps in between movies sometimes and Rene Russo who is oh, basically yeah. Kim Basinger adjacent <laughs> also well. huge gaps between movies right during their career and then yeah. their career sort of just ends at a certain point more or less but well Russo kind of had a, a little bit of a a late return at some point I feel like she started popping back up in things maybe not she was in Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler. although I think she, is she married to the guy that directed that maybe hmm. the last thing I remember basing her being in was eight mile yeah that's to true. tie it back in with Curtis Hansen that's right was she nominated for that too or no I don't know. This, uh, this may I have been. She, a, I think I do think she was nominated for best supporting actress for that. Can that be? I don't know. Because I thought I read something that she won on her only nomination, which would be for this. Yeah. Lynn is a prostitute resembling Veronica Lake, but also runs into former cop Leland Buzz Meeks, who are together. They both work for a man named Pierce Patchett, whose Florida Lee service runs high-end prostitutes altered by plastic surgery to resemble film stars, Bud mistakenly thought a girl recovering from a nose job had been abused. That's mm. why he approached yeah. the car in the first place. There is one thing that I never really picked up on, and we will talk about it later when we get there. I'm sure I have not picked up on it. No, you might have, because... Okay. Bud does specifically say it, but it's one of those lines that I just didn't okay. pay attention to or whatever. It's basically about Stenslin, his partner in this scene, who's in the car with him when he approaches his car. He doesn't recognize Meeks or Lefferts. Oh, okay. And you kind of forget about that yeah, by the yeah. end. You're like, oh, yeah, that is like a huge thing later. <laughs> right. But you don't realize that because so, there's so many fucking moving pieces going on that by the time that gets revealed, you're like, who's Stenslin again? Yeah. <laughs> He is a forgotten figure at that point because so much shit happens after his death. Yeah, but it is crucial that they connect all of these people together. Right. Don't they do like some flashback stuff to this? Yeah, a couple yeah. times so that you remember who Meeks and right. Susan Lefferts are. Lefferts is actually going to look like Rita Hayworth, I guess, by the end of this. Mm-hmm. She's played by an actress named Amber Smith, who was in some other stuff that we've done on the podcast in small parts. She was... In American Beauty, hmm. she plays Peter Gallagher's wife. Oh, yeah. She's in that one scene right. at the party or whatever. So another spacey movie. Uh-huh. She was in Private Parts. Okay, good movie. I don't remember who she was, yeah. but I'm sure it was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Real brothels like Florida Lee may have existed, which we talked about. I don't know. But in other words, at least it wasn't invented for this book. Yeah. There's a rumor of these things having existed. Who knows if they did or not. When we talked about the miniseries Pam and Tommy, right? we talked about how one of the big things with the sex tape was that Pamela Anderson felt like her career was derailed, which it probably was in some way, shape, or form, but we also talked about these roles that she thought she was going to get. I know. I, I now feel bad. I feel like we kind of scoffed at the insinuation that she was a legitimate contender for this role. Well, we were being real. I just don't know that she ever really had the acting chops. That's not a knock on her. I love Pamela Anderson. I always love pop culture people. Oh, yeah. 
I would never shame her in any way. I feel like what happened with the whole sex tape thing and even like having to relive it. Yeah. With Pam and Tommy and like her talking about that on the Netflix thing. It's it feels horrible. But I've seen Barbed Wire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not a good movie and she's yeah. not good in it. I, I don't know. know what to say. I'm sorry. And there is a lot of lines to this role too. And she's 14 years younger than Basinger. Yeah. Basinger was already basically 40 years old, which was even significantly older than Veronica Lake was. We'll talk, we'll talk about this more later. But Veronica Lake, who was already not a star anymore because she really just had her run in the 40s and by the early 50s was already kind of out of it. But she was only like 33 in 1952 oh, wow. or 3. Yeah. Basinger's already 40, and I think that comes into play later, especially in that scene late in the film where she doesn't have makeup on. Mm-hmm. When Bud sort of loses it. That's right. There's a sadness. The mileage is there. I agree. And I think the age adds something to the character. She's not some bright-eyed ingenue who showed up in Hollywood and got turned in the wrong direction. She's somebody who's like lived this life, and it sort of sucks. Yeah. Having her be older. And I just don't know that Pamela Anderson, you know, (laughs) I just don't know that would have been conveyed in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's true. There's this feeling of this life is it, she's running out of runway. Yeah. Yeah. And right. I think Pamela Anderson would have been glowing a bit too much for this role. Other people that were considered a lot of these I I couldn't really imagine some of them I could, I guess. Lorraine Bracco. Wow. Gina Davis. Okay. Melanie Griffith, Terry Hatcher, Angelica Houston. Would they have changed the actress she's supposed to look like? I don't I think, think Angelica Houston looks like Veronica Lake at all. No. Jennifer Jason Lee, who is, of course, considered for every role we've ever talked about <laughs> on this podcast. Michelle Pfeiffer, Meg Ryan, and Renee Russo, the aforementioned Renee Russo. So there's a connection here. When Bud takes Meeks' wallet, there's a Florida Lee card, which was also found at the Matt Reynolds bust yeah. early in the film with Vincennes. We're starting to see there's some sort of connection. Obviously, we don't know what any of this means yet. Right. But this all leads into a little event called Bloody Christmas, <laughs> which is a real thing. Yikes. A perfect storm of booze, circumstance, and inherent racism. And again, just more rage getting ready to boil over at any moment. In real life... Bloody Christmas happened in 1951, happened on Christmas of that year. It's the name given to the severe beating of seven civilians by the members of the LAPD. The attacks, which left five Mexican-American and two white young men with broken bones and ruptured organs, were properly investigated only after lobbying from the Mexican-American community. The internal inquiry by the Los Angeles Chief of Police, William H. Parker, resulted in eight police officers being indicted for the assaults, 54 being transferred, and 39 suspended, and the event was fictionalized in Elroy's novel and then in the film. In the film, the main culprit is Dick Stensland, Bud's partner. Yeah. So what happened was a couple of police get into a physical altercation with some suspects in a park. Not a good look. Much like what happens in the film, it's a word-of-mouth telephone game where it keeps getting exaggerated more and more. Oh, yeah. I think in real life, one of the police officers had a black eye and one had, like, bruising. And then it became one of the cops lost an eye and then one was almost dead Uh and all these different things. (laughs) Yes. And so 
the police illegally or against their own rules, I guess, had alcohol in the station to celebrate Christmas. There a lot of drinking and drunk guys going on. They bring in these suspects. They beat them up. Oh, boy. In the film, it's led by Stensland. Exley is the night shift commander who they ignore and oh, lock right. in another room so that he can't stop them. <laughs> it's a total disaster. The press happened to be there. Oh, takes yeah. a picture. It ends up in the paper. It's a black eye for the department, so heads are going to have to Several roll. Several guys are involved. So, look... This is sort of a mystery movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend just seeing it because we've already sort of spoiled a lot of stuff that's to come, but I think we're going to get into it to speculate as we go through. So either check it out on Plex, rent it on Vudu, buy the Blu-ray, whatever you got to do. But anyway, Bud refuses to testify against his partner or anyone else. But he did hit somebody too, right? Bud. I believe so. Yeah. Once he goes in there, well, he's trying to. He tries pu- to break it up. He tries but... to pull, yeah, Stenslin off of the guy, but then he gets hit. So then he's hitting people. However, Exley, against the advice of Dudley Smith, volunteers to testify against the corrupt police officers involved in exchange for promotion to detective lieutenant. And it feels very similar to Bradley Cooper and Place Beyond the yeah, Pines. Yeah, definitely. The higher ups get Vincennes to corroborate by threatening his work on Badge of Honor. So this is all going to be done behind the scenes before they actually go in front of a grand jury. Like, how do we all set this up? Who's going to take the fall? Most of the guys are guys who already have their pension secured. Right. But Senslin does not, and he's going to take the biggest hit. Which does seem like it sucks. But my question is, once you know the truth about Dudley Smith, Mm -hmm. the way he reacts about Senslin, like he's a piece of shit, we got to get rid of him. Right. Is he already setting in motion the plan to kill him? I'm thinking. Because he's seeing this as an opportunity to get him off the force, get him vulnerable, and then just have him killed, right? It seems like it. It feels like it has to be that way. Because later when he's asked about Meeks, he says almost the same thing. Like, he was a terrible cop. (laughs) Straight D's on his fitness reports or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) He's always throwing these guys under the bus, and then you find out it's like his henchmen, basically. But I do love the Kevin Spacey character. Yeah, take my badge, but don't let me lose my TV gig. Yeah. The whole ordeal causes Bud to hate Exley because Dick Stenslin is fired for his role in the melee thanks to Exley's testimony. Meanwhile, Smith recruits Bud, whose job he protects, mm-hmm. because Exley sort of implies he should be fired too. Exley is a crusader. To torture and frighten away out-of-town criminals trying to gain a foothold in L.A., with Mickey Cohen out of the picture. Once you know the truth, this seems very obvious as to what they're doing, but I guess when you're watching it, you've probably seen similar portrayals in other films of these type of things. Hmm. Even in like westerns, like, oh, these people come to town, we got to get rid of them. So you're thinking, okay, they have underhanded, dirty, semi-corrupt police tactics, but they're still morally pushing for the right thing to happen. Let's get rid of the gangsters. But then you realize later why they're doing it. And I guess this is maybe some of the beauty of it, but in this first section of the movie, even though you have every reason to feel like Exley is the most pure character, he's like the most hateable to me during this segment. Yeah, I think Pierce even said that he originally didn't really want to do the movie because he didn't like Exley and didn't understand him. Mm -hmm. And it took a while to really get the full picture to the character at all. This is where we see the montage of gangland assassinations of some of Mickey's 
associates with like voiceover narration from yeah Sid Hutchins again yeah Hutchins actually narrates a couple of segments in the first half of the film which is weird because right. he's not really a main character and does not live to see the end yeah <laughs> I guess it's throwing you off the scent yep Exley is not popular amongst the other cops he's considered a snitch everyone knows what he did a little Matt Damon departed in there too yeah yeah Vincennes notices the Florida Lee logo from the business card he picked up at the Matt Reynolds bust on some bondage fetish porn portfolios. So he starts looking into it because part of his punishment for Bloody Christmas is a temporary transfer to vice from narcotics, and he needs to make a big bust if he wants to ever make it back to narcotics. And he's not super thrilled because vice is sort of lame. Mm -hmm. It's not... Not high profile. I mean, yeah, sure, it's fun to look at the bondage pornography, I guess, but right. to bust people for this stuff, it's not quite as glamorous as yeah, drugs yeah. or murder. And I guess he's also thinking that once he makes it back to narcotics, he's allowed to be on Badge of Honor Which again. Which seems like it's what it's all about for him. Soon after Exley's promotion, he takes a call for a homicide at a coffee shop called The Night Owl. This is quite a joint. It's a bloodbath. It's a robbery, oh, yeah. multiple homicides... However, a couple of the victims are people we know. First of all, Dick Stensland, recently mm-hmm. relieved of duty from the LAPD. And Susan Lefferts, who at this time only Bud would recognize, as she was the girl in the process of surgery to make her resemble Rita Hayworth, and this who he thought had been beat up. seem weird. Well, on the surface, you can start piecing it together in a way that you can make it make sense. Because... Bud asks Stenslin if he wants to go out and drink after he's leaving the job for the last time. And right. Stenslin says, I can't, I have a date, but maybe later. Uh-huh. That night, seemingly, is when Exley finds him murdered, and he's with a prostitute. Yeah. Although, only Bud knows that she's a prostitute at this point. But it has to be, because how else could this guy be on a date? <laughs> <laughs> it was the 50s. It I was know. a different time. Yeah. So even if Exley and some of the other cops aren't really having the hair on the back of their neck stick up yet, when Bud finds out about Susan Lefferts being with Stenslin the night that they're both murdered, he's starting to wonder what the fuck he was stumbling into with Lynn and this Buzz Meeks guy who seemed like a prickly pair. Mm-hmm. What was that exactly? What happened here? But as of yet, there doesn't seem to be anything tangible to grasp onto as far as like a a scheme, a plot, some secret thing, any corruption. You're kind of just like, okay, my partner got fired and then got murdered that night, and he was with a prostitute that I happened to run into. And they just got caught up in what appeared to be a horrific crime. Yeah, just just for the cash in the place called Night Owl, what was it, like 37 bucks? (laughs) (laughs) Give me a break. Although it is slightly noteworthy, I guess, to point out that Smith takes the case from Exley right away. Yes. They start pushing the wrong place, wrong time narrative right away for Dick. He mentioned that he was going to on this date earlier. There's no reason to suspect he was the target. It looked like a robbery, so wrong place, wrong time. But it's a total fucking massacre. I know. Trio of shooters. Bloodbath. You can, in retrospect, see how Smith controls all of the narrative pretty much up front. Yes. Because... 
he starts pitching this idea of he's a little too know-it-all about the whole situation three african-american youths being the prime suspects where this information came from i don't know but there's claims that they were spotted with shotguns in a park they were driving a mercury coupe which happened to be parked in the area the whole deal it all magically coming together by right. the next morning and no one seems to question this at I all. i know it's actually kind of confusing when you're watching it just eh. because all they're doing is saying these guys he well later you know this but he right. picked three guys with records claims that there was a call about them mm-hmm. being spotted with shotguns in a time like the 50s that was probably enough yeah because of the inherent racism of the times and also right. the known racism of the LAPD that of course was something that yeah was ingrained in their culture for decades what i mean is there's not a lot of build up to hey these are our guys and i understand why that is but because it's just it's all two hours sudden- and 15 minute movie <laughs> and this is not the main story <laughs> we have several stories left to go this is all a piece of a bigger story because it seems like they're introducing a mystery and then all of a sudden it's just like oh it's these three guys yeah but it's not though i know but it <laughs> feels weird that's why it feels weird when it happens though well, there's no other way to do this. Yeah. There's just not enough time. A miniseries. You could say that maybe this wasn't the next morning. It's sort of hard to tell. They, True. They do jump from day to day, and you're not really sure if time is supposed to pass or what. Fair enough. While Exley and Vincennes form an unlikely duo in search of the suspects, Bud takes the opportunity to track down Lynn via the liquor store, where I guess they just have an a address on file. <laughs> <laughs> but the address actually takes him to... Pierce Patchett of Fleur de Lis fame. He doesn't seem too broken up about Susan Lefford's death. No. From there, Bud heads to Lynn's house. She's entertaining a councilman. Sure. As a guest. She has a Veronica Lake film being projected. I think it was Sullivan's Travels, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I was going to ask. And she has the framed Veronica Lake picture on the wall. So she's really living the gimmick 24-7. You gotta love it. Dedication. I actually think that they ended up using a wig because they were trying to dye her hair and it got all like messed up or something and then they had to like cut it and they ended up having to use like a really expensive wig for the Mm. movie. Okay. I think I already covered all of this stuff vis-a-vis Basinger's age versus Veronica Lake's in 1952 and then Lake's career... Her most well-known biggest film, the film that's in the Criterion Collection, I think it's on the AFI Top 100, Sullivan's Travels. That's 1941, and that was pretty early on in her career. I think she started pretty much in like 39 or something, and then had a few hits in the 40s, This Gun for Hire, The Blue Dahlia, oddly enough, oh. which is where the Black Dahlia got the name. Okay. I Married a Witch. All right. A few other movies like that. But yeah. yeah, by 1952, it had started to peter out. It was a lot harsher. Because even now, if actresses' careers aren't necessarily long, at least they make a lot of money. Back sure. then, they weren't even really making any money. So, you know, yeah. once they were out of the business, it was pretty rough. Working at a place like the Night Owl. Or at Florida Lee. Right. <laughs> really dark. Patchett's running whores. Cut to look like movie stars. Judging by his address, probably something bigger on the side. He doesn't want any attention. That's right. Our motives are selfish. So we're cooperating. So cooperate, Miss Bracken. Why was Susan Lefferts at the night owl? 
I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How did she meet Patchett? Pierce meets people. Sue came on a bus with dreams of Hollywood, and this is how they turned out. Thanks to Pierce, we still get to act a little. Tell me about Pierce. He's waiting for you to mention money. You want some advice, Miss Bracken? It's Lynn. Miss Bracken, don't ever try to fucking bribe me or threaten me, or I'll have you and Patchett and shit up to your ears. I remember you from Christmas Eve. You have a thing for helping women, don't you, Officer White? Maybe I'm just fucking curious. You say fuck a lot. You fuck for money. There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? When they deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Just like the half dozen guys you screwed today. <laughs> well, actually, it was only two. You're different, Officer White. You're the first man in five years who didn't tell me I look like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. You look better than Veronica Lake. Pierce Patchett. He takes a cut of our earnings and invests it for us. He doesn't let us use narcotics and he doesn't abuse us. Can your policeman's mentality grasp those contradictions? He had you cut to look like Veronica Lake. No. I'm really a brunette. But the rest is me. And that's all the news that's fit to print. It's nice meeting you, officer. I'd like to see you again. Are you asking me for a date or an appointment? I don't know. If you're asking me for a date, I should know your first Forget date. Forget I asked. Was a mistake. Clearly, Bud's smitten immediately. Can't blame him. And he ain't interested in paying. Exley and Vincennes arrest three African-American felons for the crime. Very convenient and very hyper-specific evidence found in their maroon mercury coop. But there were already two other cops on the scene, and those two other cops with them almost kill the suspects, if not for Exley, who's literally like grabbing their shotgun and pointing it at the ceiling yeah. as they're firing it. This is not exactly on the up and up, fellas. Well, in all fairness, it doesn't seem like most of the interactions between cops and suspects no, are on the up and up in this never. movie. <laughs> While being interrogated, two of the men start confessing to an unrelated crime involving a young girl, which causes Bud, who is overhearing Exley do this, to completely fucking lose it. His spidey senses go off. He's like gripping the back of that chair yeah. and the chair just breaks. <laughs> and then he runs into the interrogation room and just starts like beating the shit yeah, out really. of this dude. I ain't got shit to say till I see a judge. Were you on hop? You guys were all passed out when we arrested you. Were you hopped up, Ray? I and Lewis fuck with that shit, man. Not me. Where do they get their stuff? Come on. Give me one to feed the DA. It'll make me look good. And I'll say Sugar Ray's not a punk like his sissy partners. All right, Raymond. Tell me one more thing about Jones and Fontaine. Where do they get their drugs? Roland Navarin. He runs a hole up on Bunker Hill. And he sells red devils. Actually, it's good. I'll give him that. I'm going to take a break. 
You know, Ray, I'm talking about the gas chamber, and you haven't even asked me what this is about. You got a big guilty sign around your neck. That was masterful, Edmund. This one's ready to go. Give Jones the newspaper. I want him primed. I'll take the cuffs off so he can read it. Ray Collins just ratted you off. He said the night owl was your idea. I think it was Ray's idea. You talk, I think I can save your life. Son, six people are dead, and someone has to pay for it. Now it can be you, or it can be Ray. Lewis, he called you queer. Said at Casitas, you took it up the ass. I didn't kill nobody! Son, you know what's going to happen to you if you don't talk. You'll go to the gas chamber, so for God's sake, admit what you did. I didn't mean to hurt her. Maybe she's okay. Okay? Well, these people are all in the morgue. They were dead when you left them. I just wanted to lose my cherry. She don't die, so I don't die. She don't die, so I don't die. Lewis, who's the girl? What's her name? Who are you talking about? Was she at the night out? Lewis, listen to me. Was she at the night out? This newspaper shit ain't shit. Where's the girl Fontaine's talking about? Did you kill her? You wanted Lewis to lose his cherry, but that wasn't enough. So things got out of hand and you made her bleed. She bled on your clothes, so you burned the clothes. I told you that! Now listen to me. If that girl is still alive, she's the only chance you've got. I think she's alive. You think? Then where is she now? To leave her someplace? To sell her out? <laughs> Tell me where she is. Move! <laughs> White? One in six. Where's the girl? White, I have this under control. Put the weapon where down. Where is the girl? In Avalon, Brown Corner House, upstairs. The one thing I, that I have to applaud the LAPD for in this film, which there's not a lot because it's 99% terrible, yeah. but I do appreciate the fact that they take what these guys are saying and they treat it as if it's a huge deal, even right. though they're in the middle of trying to do this other thing with I the know. night out. They're like, oh shit, we got to go save this girl. And then they do, and then they save this girl. I'll give them their props there. I know. They took it seriously, and then they did it. Because you would think there'd be a, oh, this is just trying to distract us. Rather than, like, shut up, we don't care about this. Yeah. <laughs> there was just a bloodbath at a local coffee shop. While the cops go and rescue the girl, though, the three night owl suspects escape police custody. How horrible of a job can you do? I have wondered if that's something that Smith does. But they One kind of explain thing. it later that yeah. it's through a window or something, so I don't know how Smith would have done that. I know. But it felt very suspicious to me. Agree. That there was something going on there. Bud shoots the man holding the girl captive and plants a gun on him to make it look like he shot at him first. Exley pursues the night owl suspects to the address of a drug dealer mentioned in their interrogation. 
actually also talked shit to Bud about the crime scene. Oh, yeah, he knows yeah. what Bud did. <laughs> yeah, then he takes a dig at Stenslin, which I think came out the wrong way. I don't think he meant it as in, like, Stenslin got killed and that's what he deserved, but he's yeah. like, Stenslin got what he deserved and you about will his- too. Yeah. I think he That's meant true. getting fired I from know. the force, but it, it was just like insane. That to was say the way that. I took it. I wasn't even thinking that. Yeah, dead. <laughs> well, I think that's why I know Bud reacts the way he does. Right. So Exley goes to pursue these suspects at the address of a drug dealer that they mentioned in their interrogation. God only knows why they would go to the one place they specifically told the cops about. But okay, he brings another officer with him who opens fire when a bottle falls off of a table and breaks. That cop is killed, Mm. and Exley is left alone and kills the rest of the men in a shootout. Afterwards, most of the department changes their tune about him, seeing Exley as a hero, and he's awarded the Medal of Valor. There are some differences here from the novel. Obviously, we're not going to get into a lot of them. I haven't read this book. I think the only one I read of those four was The Black Dahlia, but this seemed pretty major and it isn't a whole through line or plot line that was eliminated this had to do with the characters we know which is in the book the love triangle is between Exley Bud and the girl they rescue who was being raped and tied up which is grim yikes not that someone who went through something horrible isn't worthy of love or being in a relationship but the cops that rescue her that seems so True Detective Season 1. Gross. Yeah. And just not appropriate. But they move that over to Lynn. I think it works. For the movie. Which makes me wonder how big of a character Lynn is even in the book. I actually should read this book. I don't know why I haven't. Hansen did not want the film to be an exercise in nostalgia, and so he had Spinati shoot it like a contemporary film and use more naturalistic lighting than in a classic film noir. He told Spinati and the film's production designer, Janine Oppenwall, to pay great attention to period detail, but to then put it all in the background. He was much more interested in the performances taking center stage. And though the film does look and feel very natural, and it was shot primarily in real existing places, right? $35 million wasn't quite enough to build a vintage world from scratch. Because at the time the film takes place, no building in Los Angeles was allowed to be taller than City Hall. Wow. So the cameras were placed at certain points so that any building taller than City Hall would not be seen in the film. So you have to get creative. They did similar things in The Godfather and totally. hide some of the modern stuff. What a weird rule, though. <laughs> well, they didn't realize like how much the world was going to change, yeah. probably, when they first decided to do something that stupid. <laughs> So Exley's a hero now. Vincennes can return to his job on the TV show. Jack's so he's back. Happy. Yeah. Ha ha. <laughs> That's sad laugh. No one missed him. No, they do. They I love know. him. I know. Matt, that Matt McCoy guy. Yeah. And Bud sits outside of Lynn's home watching her entertain John's one at a time. <laughs> I love in these movies that are set in Los Angeles how often it rains. I know. It's like constantly raining in this movie. Yeah. And you're like, okay. At the same time, Patchett's got political influence due to council members spending time with his ladies, and the Santa Monica Freeway moves forward with construction starting. What is it about California and freeways during this time? How many movies touch on these things? And it's always like wrapped up in corruption. (laughs) Yeah, which I'm sure it probably was, but 
just seems like a certain generation of people can't get over it. But <laughs> <laughs> a lot of dirty business went into that freeway. Bud continues to assist Smith in the beating of new criminals in town, ostensibly to keep L.A. clean, but it's all off the books, taking place in seedy motel rooms and abandoned buildings. By the way, I like these seedy motel rooms that are those weird motels where it almost seems like they're like individual little houses. Yeah. 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 We'll talk a little bit more about the Victory Motel later. Oh, good. He also caves and goes to see Lynn eventually kicking off a turbulent and uneasy romance everything has settled in the aftermath of bloody christmas and the night owl massacre right we think you'd think so but as they tend to do things take a turn (laughs) sid hudgens gets vincennes involved in a new attempt to stage a scandal one that has a little bit of personal appeal to vincennes hudgens is setting up a homosexual tryst between struggling actor matt reynolds the very same that vincennes busted early in the film and district attorney ellis lowe the da that forced vincennes to testify after bloody christmas and almost took his prized gig on badge of honor away so vincennes is willing to set up a scandal with hudgens and do the bust and embarrass everyone but as he's talking to Matt Reynolds, it's clear that Matt doesn't remember that it was Vincennes that busted him and mistakenly thinks he recognizes him from a Florida Lee party. Oh boy. So on instinct, Vincennes goes along with it to try to find out more about Florida Lee and Patchett, although there's not really much to gain from this, other than Reynolds says that he's a little bit scared of Patchett. So everything's set up. Vincennes is supposed to show up at a specific motel room at midnight for the bust. But when he's sitting in the bar waiting for that time to roll around, you can really feel that self-loathing. Oh, yeah. It's very familiar to me. And he's not particularly happy with what he's doing because he feels bad for Matt Reynolds. They lied to him saying Mm -hmm. that Vincennes could get him a part on Badge of Honor. He actually thinks that he's going to have a career, even though the whole point of this is to expose it in the paper. And this was not a very... LGBTQ friendly time so I'm pretty sure, sure his career as an actor would be over Right. the target is low and that would be way more damaging to him but it's not as if Reynolds is going to be able to spin this off into a career no, after it. likely blackballed from the industry so the whole dirty business is weighing a little bit on Vincennes he arrives early intending to warn Matt before Hudgens and his photographer get there but he finds Matt alone in the room Murdered with his throat slit. Mm-hmm. While that's happening, Exley is learning that the rape victim's testimony that her assailants, the night owl suspects, may not have actually left her as early as it seemed initially, and now there's some doubt in his mind about their role in the night owl situation. I know. He does recognize that something is off with it immediately. It's the way that some detectives and police brains work. Yeah. Because... It didn't feel right that those other cops were standing around the car and then there's this perfect evidence just sitting there Yeah, yeah. that was going to tie those guys to the crime. And then the way that they were trying to kill them right away and the way that they were able to escape when no one was around. All these odd details. He doesn't know what the fuck is going on, but it doesn't seem right. And now she's saying that her testimony wasn't exactly accurate about when they left her. And so maybe they would not have gotten there. It's with Lynn that Bud shares his horrific story of his parents 
and how he was chained to the radiator while his father beat his mother to death and then had to stay there for a couple of days until someone actually found them. It is dark. So you can kind of understand his motivation, his rage. You actually kind of have to give him credit for having a a semi-respectable career. (laughs) This is a a horrific story. He's on a never-ending quest for revenge that can never really be satisfied. No, that's a hole that you're never going to fill. Well, part of it is that they never found his father after this. So he never really faced any justice, apparently. He also confesses to Lynn that he thinks something isn't adding up about the night owl and that the men actually killed had nothing to do with it, but he can't prove it, though. At this point in time, Bud feels like he knows his role and his limitations, and he doesn't think he's smart. Bud is essentially a thug in yeah, his yeah. mind. He's An muscle. Enforcer. Yeah. He's supposed to be the tough, badass guy, which is what Smith uses him as. And you do wonder if things didn't go awry, if Bud would have been brought into the fold, only later to be murdered once he became useless. But if he was planning on using him as one of his new guys True. further down the line... But Lynn provides the encouragement. So she's already working her way into that girlfriend role, saying that he can do it, that he is smart enough. I don't know where she's getting that from. (laughs) That seems like a lie. (laughs) Yeah. She's the only one that thinks so. Bud pursues the case, going to the home of Susan Lefferts, one of the Night Owl victims, the one Bud recognized from the car on Christmas Eve. Susan's mother from a picture, identifies Dick Stenslin as Susan's quote-unquote boyfriend. Huh. So this is the moment that when it happens... Everybody knows something's wrong now. It just go, went right by me. Yeah, yeah. I was like, why does he think that that's such a big deal? I completely <laughs> forgot that Stenslin no-sold knowing right. who she was. <laughs> Obviously, they were not really boyfriend-girlfriend, yeah, but yeah. he was someone that had been around enough that Susan's mother thought that. A terrible smell prompts Bud to search in the crawl space cellar beneath the home. Although I like how fidgety she is over this whole thing. Yeah, it it's makes like her a, seem suspicious I in know. a weird way. There's a rat that died back there. Under the home, he finds the rotting corpse of Buzz Meeks. Yes, the former cop who he had met with Susan, Patchett, and Lynn on that fateful Christmas Eve night. She's just living with this dead body in her basement. Bud takes his wallet. It reminded me of when we had a an infestation mm-hmm. I know. in one of our apartments, and there was like a rat or something that died, and it smelled under the stairs. Horrible. Horrible. One can't even talk about it. <laughs> and that was just one small animal, let alone uh, a whole body. I know. She just puts that thing on the floor to block the doorway. <laughs> Yikes. Exley starts digging back into the case, too, and he's surprised to discover Bud's already been doing the same thing. Exley tracks Bud to Mrs. Lefferts' home, except he's actually going to bring the body of Meeks in, rather than leave it there like Bud did. He also recruits Vincennes to his cause, telling him the story of Rollo Tomasi, the man who killed his father and the symbol of men who think they can get away with it. It's a little bit confusing, because Rolo Tomasi is not actually the name of the man who killed his father. It's just an identity right. he created. And it's if like, you were going to create an identity, of course, you would choose a very common name like Rolo Tomasi. <laughs> it's like a Kaiser Sosa situation. 
Yeah, that's interesting because this is only two years, I believe, after Usual Suspects. So it is yeah. very similar to another Kevin Spacey thing with Kaiser Soze and right. Rolo Tomase and these weird names and whose identity it is and how there is kind of a cool twist, although this occurs more towards the middle of the film. Although yeah. not middle, but like three quarters of the way through rather than the end. But yeah. I think this is the moment, though, when Exley recruits vincennes to the cause like hey something's not right i'm gonna fuck up my own career because i've made now because right. of what happened with the night owl guys everyone thinks i'm a hero i'm willing to tear that down to do what's right because i need to live up to this idea of my father i need to be this better man this better cop it's why really did you the... become a cop in the first place and he's like i don't know yeah and I think this is the moment where Vincennes like realizes he has to start doing the right thing because he feels like shit about yes. what happened with Matt Reynolds. And it's really just from Exley's perspective at this point that something is awry and it's from within the department, right? He does not have a specific yeah. suspect or anything, but he just doesn't feel like the Night Owl thing was right. Right. But it was made to look like it was clearly so because of the guns. So it has to be police involved. Probably, yeah. yeah. Vincennes agrees to help if Exley helps him with the murder of Matt Reynolds. Little do they know, this is all wildly connected somehow. At Exley's request, Vincennes tails Bud, following him to a bar where Bud interrogates Johnny Stompanato. More on him in a bit, but Stompanato is Mickey Cohen's ex-bodyguard, and he says that Meeks was trying to sell a large stash of stolen heroin. Vincennes and Exley also spy on Bud making time with Lynn, which I think, at least momentarily, turns their suspicion onto Bud because it just seems like something so wild and out of character. I guess they don't realize that Florida Lee and these prostitutes are somehow connected to the Night Owl in any way, shape, or form, but it's still weird. Uh-huh. And it does maybe speak to some form of corruption going on, but you're not really sure if they're all connected, but it puts his character into question. This does seem like it would start to drive you crazy. Like having all these weird little connections. Yeah, because in real life, you would never be able to put this all together. I know. Because <laughs> it's just too many things. Yeah. As they point out, I think it's actually Exley or maybe Vincennes that says, Rita Hayworth in the morgue, Veronica Lake with Bud, heroin, porno, the night owl, Meeks, Stenslin, Patchett, Matt Reynolds. Exley and Vincennes start to think that maybe it's all connected, but they can't really quite I know. see it all. But it is weird. Florida Lee keeps coming up, whether it's porno or prostitutes or Matt Reynolds or Patchett. All these things seem like they're somehow connected to the Night Owl because one of the prostitutes was there and Stenslin and Meeks. I know. And Stenslin was lying about not knowing some of these people and something's off. How can this be? Exley wants to speak with Stompanato himself now, which leads into a very funny scene. Right. Stompanato's hanging out at a bar with a woman who Exley believes is a prostitute who has had plastic surgery to look like Lana Turner, and he addresses her as such. And the whole time, Vincennes is sort of like pulling on his sleeve, yeah, like, yeah. that is Lana Turner, hey, that is Lana Turner. <laughs> Even when they come out of the bar and Vincennes is smiling like a butcher's dog, just <laughs> laughing the whole time. Well, he enjoyed taking that all in she throws a drink in his face because yep. it actually is lana turner in reality lana turner 
her private life did pose a serious problem for the studios. She had eight marriages. That was Oof. one element. Another She's... was her relationship with Johnny Stompanato, which okay. is real. Yep. This film is actually set five years before Turner's most notorious incident during which Stompanato attacked her. Turner's daughter stabbed and killed him in defense of her mother. The trial and acquittal provided a great deal of gossip for several years to come. They didn't actually start dating, though, until 1957, and that incident was in 58. So it didn't even take long to reach that point in the relationship. But, of course, okay. they're yeah. changing when Bloody Christmas happened, and they're changing when this happened. And Legendary move by that 14-year-old daughter? Yeah. Wow. Pretty badass. <laughs> really? Exley and Vincennes try Patchett next, but he plays it cool and reveals nothing. A little too cool. Almost the kind of coolness you would expect from someone who believes he has police protection. I think you're onto something here. The two then split up. Vincennes goes back to the precinct to get the ID on the body Exley pulled from underneath Mrs. Leffert's house, because remember, Bud took his wallet. I do. And Exley goes to see Lynn Bracken, suspicious about her seeing Bud. Yeah, do you not know that he's a raging lunatic? (laughs) It would be easier for you if there was an angle, wouldn't it? You're afraid of Bud because you can't figure out how to play him. He doesn't follow the same rules of politics as you do. It makes him dangerous. I can handle Bud White. Can you? I see Bud because I want to. I see Bud because he can't hide the good inside of him. I see Bud because he makes me feel like Lynn Bracken and Nuts and Veronica like look-alike who fucks for money. I see Bud because he doesn't know how to disguise who he is. I see Bud for all the ways he's different from you. Don't underestimate me, Miss Bracken. The way you've underestimated Bud White? Fucking me and fucking Bud aren't the same thing, you know. Stop talking about Bud White. So this strains maybe the most credibility in the film just because of the quickness with with which this all gets put together. But whatever. You kind of get the point. I guess you could say that maybe Patchett and Lynn lived like an hour apart. Some distances take a long time, especially before those freeways are put in. That is one thing that's tough with this movie. There's times where it just feels like too many weird swerves. Exley believes Lynn is seeing Bud at Patchett's behest. But she sets him straight. She never really comes on that strong, but she's a beautiful woman. She sort of puts it out there a little bit, I guess. And then they begin to have sex, but Exley doesn't realize that he's been set up by Patchett. Sid Hudgens is hiding and taking pictures. Lynn is in on it, too. So that's what we're referring to. Right after Vincennes and Exley pull away from Patchett's house, Patchett picks up the phone, I guess to call Hudgens. 
to go over to Lynn's house. Right. I guess it makes yeah. sense because he has to drive all the way to the police station to drop Jack off, Vincennes, then drive all the way to Lynn's house. It seems like Patchett is rich and probably lives yes, like up sure. in the hills. Right. So he has to drive all the way back into the city. And maybe Lynn lives like all the way on the other side of town or something. I guess it could <laughs> yeah. make sense depending on where Hutchins is at the time. Burning a lot of miles in the greater Los Angeles area. But it seems like to set that all up very quickly, just in the time that it took him to drop off Vincennes at the police station, so, you know. I know. We kind of have to roll with right. it. It's fine. It's not like a huge hole or anything. It's just like, would there be enough time to set that all up? It would be tight. <laughs> Even if Hutchins is sitting by the phone with his camera it'd still oh, be a I little know. tight it would be hard to coordinate this stuff too in the no cell phone era what if you make this plan <laughs> yeah and hutchins isn't available to answer his phone meanwhile vincennes learns that the body is that of buzz meeks who he didn't know personally but knew he was a cop and starts doing some digging through the old files known piece of shit Vincennes goes to confront Smith with evidence that Meeks and Stenslin worked together under Smith's command a decade earlier and dropped an investigation on Patchett, who had Hutchins photographing businessmen with prostitutes in a blackmail scam. Hmm, sound familiar? Out of nowhere, in his own kitchen, Smith shoots Vincennes, who dies after murmuring Rolo Tomasi. Mm-hmm. And... In- what feels like the coolest moment in the entire film. Do you remember Buzz Meeks, Dudley? A disgrace as a police officer. Straight D fitness reports from every CEO he ever served under. What about him? Twelve years ago, he was on a vice rouse with Dick Stensland. They questioned Pierce Patchett about a, a blackmail scam. Patchett had Sid Hudgens photographing prominent businessmen with hookers. <laughs> anyway, charges were dropped. Insufficient evidence. You were the supervising officer on that case, and I was wondering if you remember anything about it. What's this all about, Goyal? Part of it has to do with a murder. I've been working with Ed Exley on it. You're a narco, Jack, not homicide. Since when do you work with Edmund Exley? Well, it's a private investigation. Uh, I messed something up. I'm trying to make amends. Don't start trying to do the right thing, Boyo. You haven't had the practice? Buzz Meeks and Dick Stenzel. So, uh, what does Exley make of all this? No, I haven't told him yet. I just came straight from the record. works so well because it's an awesome setup yeah where the audience is kept in the dark about exactly what vincennes has found right 
So when he goes to Smith's house, yes, we can assume that there might be some guilt or some reason why he's there, but we don't have the damning evidence or anything. Right. We don't know exactly what's going to happen here. There's no way to see this coming, really, because they hide enough from us, and it's the right time to do it. That way, this can pay off more. Yeah, because yeah. usually in this film, if you pay attention and you have the captions on and you're pausing to take <laughs> notes, it all makes sense. Yeah. They hit every beat of evidence. Everything connects in the right way. Like I said, there's a few moments yeah. that maybe would be hard to pull off, Don't but get not caught impossible. looking at your phone while any of this is going on. Right, because there's a lot of details yeah. about every character, about every little moment and how they all connect. But the one time that they don't let you in is that moment when Vincennes starts digging around and then all of a sudden he shows up at Smith's house. Right. You don't know exactly what he's found or how damning it is or what's happening exactly because they don't want you to know because they want this moment to play out cool. Yeah. (laughs) They don't want the full reveal that Smith is the bad guy because, as a lot of directors do, Hanson wanted Pierce and Crow because American audiences didn't have any baggage with them, didn't know anything about them. Wanted them to just be judged on their characters. Yeah, yeah. However, with Cromwell, he knew that audiences would know him from Babe, which was a huge movie. Right. Where he plays this kind farmer. Nice guy. And so bringing that baggage into LA Confidential, the reveal of him to be this villain behind it all is kind of shocking. Yeah, absolutely. And then plus Kevin Spacey, who is a much bigger star than these other two. Being the one that gets offed here. He is the biggest name of the three leads, and he is killed with like 45 minutes or so left in the film. And if you do add up all the screen time, I think his is the least of the three, but he does get top billing. There you go. That's how it works. Part of the deal. Yep. After the morning briefing with all of the officers the next morning, one in which he attempts to rally the troops to find Vincennes' killers... Smith makes a crucial mistake. He asks Exley about Rollo Tomasi, which instantly arouses Exley's suspicions. Right. It's one of those things where it doesn't exactly implicate him yeah. as the killer, but it's suspicious enough where it's sort of like a chilling moment, not only for Exley, but for the audience. You understand how he could make this mistake, though, because you would be so puzzled that this was... This man's dying words. So how do you tell people that these were his dying words (laughs) without saying that you killed him? (laughs) You're like, okay, well, who's this dude? Yeah. So you're like, hey, you know, we're looking into this associate of Jack Vincennes named Rolo Tomasi. Have you heard anything? (laughs) Which I guess is kind of a giveaway. Yeah. Because he knows the name, but he's using it in the wrong context. Uh He doesn't know what the context of it is. So how does he know this? So it's sort of a genius move by Jack. To say that as he's dying. I know. In the hopes that maybe he'll say, although that might not be his motivation. His motivation might be just laughing at the irony of it. Like, there is right. a Rolo Tomasi. This is the guy that gets away with it yeah, because yeah. he's behind it all or whatever. But still, it all works out. Right. Smith, of course, is oblivious that he's made himself suspicious. He's working a different angle, though, all along. He enlists Bud for his usual brutality on another poor soul over at the Victory Motel. The Victory Motel is featured a lot here and then towards the end and it's where the big set piece takes place. It was the only set actually constructed for the film. Okay. So they did use real locations, real houses, real places, real buildings for everything. 
including the bars and clubs, yeah. a lot of which... A lot of them have... They're, they're great for the atmosphere of the movie. Well, they were holdovers. Some of yeah. them were real places that were around right. in the 50s. Yep, and you can tell. But the Victory Motel, for as cool as it is, mm. is not real. Although when we get to that final scene, I, I do have some questions about what the business model for this place was. Yeah. <laughs> like, how... Did they ever make a profit? <laughs> like, where is this? Although Black Dahlia, too, they have this type of hotel set up. In the puritanical times of the 50s, where it was much more sexually repressed, you had to take care of your business in private. And there were yeah. probably places like this for extramarital affairs, for premarital sex, oh, for yeah. prostitution stuff. I don't know. Right. But still, there, it's not even like a real road that leads to this place. <laughs> that road. You don't want to go down that road. It's Hutchins that Smith has handcuffed out at the victory, and they're interrogating him about Vincennes, but it's all a well-crafted show. Smith is really a puppet master pulling the strings. Smith makes sure that Bud knows about the photos of Lynn and Exley together. Mm-hmm. Sees them and becomes enraged. Seething. Bud rushes off to find Exley, while Smith and one of his stooges kill Hudgens, much to Hudgens' shock, because he was in on this too, and then... I know, he was part of it. <laughs> we had a deal. <laughs> they always have a deal. That's right. Do you feel in charge? <laughs> well, it's sort of a bold move, though, by Smith, in a way, because if he guesses wrong, and Bud just punches Exley or beats him up, but doesn't kill him, then right, what does yeah. it really accomplish? Right. Not much. I guess Smith is probably cracking a bit. This whole incident where someone's kind of onto him, I think has to be... Well, he knows that Exley was sort of working with Vincennes, because right. I think Vincennes mentions it when he first shows up at the house. Yeah, yeah. But he says, I haven't shown him these reports yet, and then later those reports are missing. Right. Or some of them are. And so, yeah, he is trying to get Exley killed. It's just not the best way to do it. True. Because it's not a guarantee that it would happen, yeah. and it doesn't happen. Just wait for him to visit you in your kitchen. <laughs> Keep that move intact. While all of this has been going on, Exley's been digging through records, trying to find what Vincennes had found, but now things are missing as it relates to Stenslin and Meeks. First, Bud goes to see Lynn, confronting her about Exley, and in the process becomes the man he swore he'd never be, the man he's been hunting his whole life striking Lynn twice in a rage before running off in the rain. Not a great move. Not a great moment for Bud. No. Pretty low. Yeah, yeah. It's his moment of this irony because yeah. he's lived his whole life going after these monsters, and now he's seen himself become one. If you want to look at it from a bigger perspective, it's kind of a commentary on how rage is not the answer to combat rage. Right. In other words, his vigilante justice, his rage, his anger, him beating these men who have beat women hasn't really solved anything. It's almost like a an advertisement for therapy in a way. Yeah. Because he hasn't really worked through these issues. And he has this rage inside of him, and the rage is not controllable. That's like the answer. You think it is. He thinks he's using it for good, ultimately. Right. These pieces of shit that he's beating up. But in the end... The rage controls him and not the other way around. Totally. And so when he has a reason to feel this rage towards this woman who he has this relationship with. Now, if she says 
that she did it to help him. She like, thought. She thought she was So it, him. I guess it patch it or somebody maybe was spinning it a certain way. Right. Okay. As to why this was important. But it's never really clear if she was still working during the time they were dating. It seems like she probably was, but I would have thought whatever reason that was okay. It wasn't as personal, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I get know. it. This fucking Exley. Well, yeah, he hates Exley, plus yeah. Exley didn't pay, I guess. Oof. I don't know. Yeah, that Although that's brutal. unclear from those photos. Right. I don't know how he would have come to that conclusion. Yeah. He didn't think he had to pay. Next up, Bud finds Exley in the records room at the police station. It's actually kind of funny because Exley's like, oh, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I want to show you something. <laughs> he shows him the pictures yeah. himself. <laughs> Check this out. Exley's just at the point where he's putting it all together, but Bud is still in a rage, obviously, over Lynn, so they brawl. (laughs) But Exley manages to say enough to convince Bud what he may have already suspected deep down. It's Dudley Smith who is corrupt and behind it all, and he's trying to get you to kill me. Uh And I think that, in a way, Bud sort of knew that, because it's almost like Bud, Vincennes, and Exley which we'll talk about more at the end, they're all kind of the same. They're all on this journey of what it takes to be a good policeman, a virtuous one, one that's doing the right thing above all else. And I think Bud is having those same self-loathing doubts. He understands that he's just being used as a thug, and part of him thought maybe he was doing the right thing by beating up all these people for Smith. But he's starting to sense that maybe this wasn't, and he's not super thrilled about it when he yeah. talks to Lynn about it, and he doesn't quite understand what he's doing. And well, it can't feel great when it's like dawning on you that you've just been being manipulated. Well, yeah, I don't know that he quite fully grasped how manipulated he was. Yeah. But yeah, when Exley starts talking fast and has all of this stuff to back it up, and he's like, look. Oh, shit. He killed Jack Vincennes. He did this. He showed you the pictures. He set it up so that you would kill me. It all sort of clicks. White, I'm glad you're here. I need you to see this. killed Jack. He wants you to kill me. He showed you the photo, didn't he? Didn't he? Check the daily report books. Dudley, Buzz Meeks, and Stensland go way back. I know Stensland lied to me. Leffert's mother ID'd Stensland as Leffert's boyfriend. Stensland pretended he didn't know Meeks or her the night that I met. 
Lynn. Stensland and Meeks. What the hell were they up to? I don't know. But I think Stens killed Meeks over heroin. What heroin? Tony Stompanato told me that Meeks had heroin for sale. Meeks ends up dead. Stensland dies at the night owl. Who wasn't the Negroes? The rape victim lied in her statement. The first guys to the Mercury Coop were Bruning and Carlisle. Dudley's guys. They planted the shotguns. And they'd have killed the Negroes too if Jack and I hadn't shown up. Dudley framed them because they were Negroes and had records. And he knew there'd be no questions asked if they were... They were killed resisting arrest. Somehow this is all connected to Jack's angle. Sid Hutchins. The pictures to blackmail Ellis Lowe. A kid got murdered. If we're going to figure this out, we need to work together. Exley and Bud deduce that Stensland killed Meeks over the stolen heroin and that the night owl killings were to allow Smith to kill Stensland. I have less of a problem about the night owl killings than I do about their jump that Stensland killed Meeks over stolen heroin. Now, it's believable, but Is they don't really have any, evidence yeah, to they don't justify really that. Have yeah. any proof that that's what happened? I guess. Although, who else would hide Meeks under Susan Lefferts' mother's house? Right. There's no other connection to that house. Stensland had been there. Yeah. I don't think Patchett or Smith or anyone else knew about that house. Seems like he could have had a more creative way to dispose of a body. Smith and his men framed the three African Americans for the night owl murders with planted evidence. The two, now firmly working together, next turn their attention to District Attorney Lowe. They confront him directly about Matt Reynolds, and when he stonewalls them, Bud steps up, and things turn physical, because now the gloves are off, and Exley is fine with it. Oh, yeah. He's not going to stop him. Unless you came here to wipe my ass, I believe we're through. Come on, don't pull that good cop, bad cop crap. I practically invented it. So what if some homo actor is dead, huh? Boys, girls, ten of them get off the bus to L.A. every day. Pull him off me, I don't know how. I know you think you're the number one hot shot, but here's the juice. If I take you out, ten more lawyers will take your place tomorrow. They just won't come on the bus, that's all. Good cop, bad cop. 
By hanging low upside down out of his office window, high above the sidewalk below, they learn that Smith and Patchett, aided by Hudgens' blackmail photos, have been taking over Mickey Cohen's criminal empire and that the killings were down to Smith tying up loose ends. So it's pretty damning that your district attorney knows all of this and yet is powerless to do anything because of blackmail photos. In quick succession, Exley and Bud find Patchett murdered, staged to look like a suicide, have Lynn picked up and shielded, and then discover Hutchins has been killed as well. Smith lures Exley and Bud into an ambush out at the old Victory Motel. Parentheses, I wrote, was this place ever open? I know. When was this an operation? <laughs> How did they make money? I don't know. It did seem inconvenient. I guess the way that he sets this up is that there's calls over the radio telling each other that the other one wants to meet them at this place, even though that seems very obvious, but they both fall for it. Well, they figure it out pretty quickly. Yeah, not actually a great ambush because they're there first and have to wait for the other people to arrive. It's kind of stupid. Yeah, so then they're able to kind of get the jump because there's like the car showing up. Yeah, they hunker down in a room and enter into a massive gunfight with Smith's men. Somehow killing them all. Why does Smith even have this many men? I was thinking that. There's a lot of things you can think of here. Were these guys on Mickey Cohen's payroll and he sort of inherited them? I was thinking that. Are these just leftover guys from the Cohen regime? I think so, because at first you think that they might be cops, but that is not the case. Because (laughs) how are you ever going to explain this? Yeah. And then more yeah. cops show up. If so these thought, guys um, are not cops. If you thought Bloody Christmas was bad press. <laughs> cops killing each other. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they're necessarily leftovers from Cohen's men, but if you're going to have a criminal empire, you have to have people working for you to True. make it all run. Yeah. So they're somehow his goons. In the battle, Exley is wounded. Smith finally enters the fray, shooting Bud several times. But Bud stabs him in the back of the leg so that Exley can get the drop on Smith with a shotgun. Bud seemingly takes what would be a fatal shot to the face. That goes through his cheek. Yeah. He's fine. Roll out to Massey. Who is he? You are. You're the guy who gets away with it. After I've done, that'll make you chief of detectives. (laughs) 
Hold up your badge, so they'll know you're a policeman. As Exley holds Smith at gunpoint, Smith assures him that he'll be able to explain everything to the arriving police <laughs> and that Exley will be promoted. Smith then walks away towards the approaching squad cars, badge in the air, but Exley shoots him in the back, killing him. Fulfilling sort of the, I guess, what Smith thought that he was incapable of. Yes, exactly. He almost runs through that very specific scenario in that moment I called out at the beginning yeah. where you find everything out you need to know about who Exley is. And that's one of the things he wouldn't do is shoot a criminal that he thinks is going to get away with it. Right. And then he does it. At the police station, Exley explains what he, Vincennes, and Bud learned about Smith's corruption. Ultimately, the LAPD decides to protect their image by saying Smith died a hero in the shootout while awarding Exley a second medal about for that? bravery. Yeah. Outside City Hall, Exley says goodbye to Lynn and Bud, who somehow survived. I know. And Lynn, who somehow forgave Bud. Yeah. It was a different time. Before watching them drive off to Lynn's hometown in Arizona. Yeah, I guess you're like, well, I, I'm, I'm glad that Lynn and Bud found a way to make it work. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if 2023... That's a good message to put out there. Probably not, but... Well, hopefully he never does it again. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave it there. As I said, I'm a big fan of historical fiction. I love when these stories can effectively pull these things together. Doesn't it seem like... And this is part of how the structure of the movie is interesting. In the beginning, it does seem like Bud is the guy you're rooting for because he does have this vigilante but sort of heroic thing of taking out abusive men. And Exley kind of seems like this slime ball. But then by the end here, Bud sort of seems He's like too an afterthought. It ends with him not really feeling like a character that you're invested in anymore. I think you're invested in the three of them equally. Okay. I don't know that you're ever super invested in one over the other because they're all kept it arm's length a yeah. little bit they're all a little bit questionable intentionally so definitely which you can look at the black dahlia and say well there's an example where it didn't really work now i know De palma heads probably love it because they love everything he does but the movie is really not that great yeah the book is better and the actual true story of the black dahlia is is far more interesting even than the movie which never really works that well but there's another example of Elroy's work where I don't feel like the characters in the Black Dahlia are particularly no. likable either. True, They make it work in this because the story is captivating and they keep you guessing at the right moments. And then the reveal and then the Ro- Rolo Tomase thing all like come off perfectly. Right. And then a little bit of sex and sleaze mixed in with the prostitutes and Always all these welcome. different things. <laughs> Always appreciated. Yeah. As mentioned, many of the events in the movie were based upon real things. 
Bloody Christmas, the real-life cops were named Trojanowski and Brownson. In the film, they're changed to Helenowski and Brown. The plot line of real-life gangster Mickey Cohen's arrest, touching off a gang war for control of the rackets, is real. The LAPD goon squad, which would kidnap out-of-town gangsters, beat them up, and threaten to kill them if they ever try to come back to their operations. That's real. Lana Turner dating gangster Johnny Stompanato, although this movie is set four years before they actually did start dating. And as mentioned, in real life, Turner's daughter, Cheryl Crane, stabbed Stompanato to death on April 4th, 1958. The murders of Tony Broncato and Tony Trombino also occurred in real life. The main difference is they were shot from behind by Los Angeles mobster Jimmy Fratiano instead of machine gunned from outside. That's mm. part of that montage. Gotcha. So let's take a quick look at the growth and evolution of the three leads. With Vincennes mentioned several times, a lot of self-loathing. He can't remember why he became a cop in the first place. And it's up to Exley to sort of push him over the edge because he's sort of teetering there with his guilt over what happens to Matt Reynolds. He pushes him over the edge to become a real cop. He decides he needs to do the right thing for once. Unfortunately, it ends up costing him his life. But in a character sense, he's redeemed. Yeah. Bud, he's the thug, a mindless goon to be used in all kinds of different directions. Doesn't think he's smart, but ultimately starts to use his brain. He's the one that starts down the path that Exley follows. And the most unexpected twist ever starts using his brain. He finds Buzz Meeks. Yeah. He's the one that connects Meeks and Stensland. He's the one that knew... Stensland pretended that he didn't know Lefferts right. and Meeks. So he... Maybe... He's ultimately the one that connects Stensland to be the one that killed Meeks over the heroin because yeah. he's the one who talked to Stompanato first and found out about the heroin. So maybe he's got some detective chops himself. Unfortunately, though, he does give in to his own rage and violence with Lynn, which is a black mark on his character at the end of the film. Kind of hard to get past that yeah. at this point. Hard to come back from that. Exley begins the film self-righteous, shamelessly political. In the end, he takes the step that he was afraid to do to ensure the true villain won't get away with it. A little bit of a gray area. I don't know that it's really great to condone vigilante justice, but when you know for a fact that it's the right thing to do, I guess that... (laughs) That's true. In a film world, you can kind of forgive it. In the real world, it's harder. Well, we have a unique perspective here. But... He does still remain political until the very end because he accepts his promotion and his second Medal of Valor. Well, come on. Because he's willing to allow the real truth about Captain Smith and everything to get swept under the rug. Totally. But yeah, I think it's cool. You have three distinct main characters. You understand almost immediately what they're all about. You can differentiate them, and then you can see how they change and evolve over the the two hours and 15 minutes of the film. Okay, so before we part ways with L.A. Confidential entirely, I figured we would pick up what we started with Cronenberg last time, and we'll talk about Curtis Hansen a little bit and do a little selected filmography. I'm skipping over some of his later films and earlier films and TV movies and whatnot, but he's an interesting filmmaker, passed away a few years ago. He's not what you would describe as an auteur. There's nothing really no. d- distinctive about his style, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because it allows you to move seamlessly from genre to genre 
and yeah. try different things but without really being tied down to anything specific. It does stand out when you're looking through the movies, though, especially Wonder Boys being a movie that I got into watching with you a few years ago, looking through the filmography and you're like, okay, wow, yeah, I would not have pegged that these were the other movies he did. Yeah, I would just describe him as a competent storyteller. I would say that he's got a stronger filmography than maybe you would think at first, although some of the entries are a little bit more obscure. The ones I picked out, The Bedroom Window, 87. Uh Kind of a cool movie. Bad Influence, 90. Things really take a huge step up in terms of popularity with The Hand That Rocks the Cradle in 92, which is a massive movie, and spoiler alert, we will be covering it on the podcast, so if you haven't seen it, I would recommend checking it out if you Mm -hmm. can. It's, in a lot of ways, the definitive movie of that genre, which became a lifetime thing, a staple of, I think Bill Simmons describes it as the From Hell movie. Okay. Blank From Hell. Yeah. In this instance, it's Nanny From Hell, which is the best because it's a woman who gets inside your house and has all this unlimited access to your family, but then what happens if they're fucked up and evil? But it can either be like the husband from hell. It becomes a movie I want to see. Whatever. Yeah. Unbelievable performance from Rebecca Mornay in that movie. I love it. The River Wild in 94. I've never seen it, but I, I was have. it a hit? It feels like it Isn't had to Bacon be? in it? Yeah. And Meryl, Meryl Streep. Streep. Yeah. I remember hearing it about it when it came out, but I never saw it. It's like one of those ones that I saw on VHS rental as like a pretty young kid. Then he takes all those years to put together the script for L.A. Confidential, which is the big Oscar-nominated film. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for Titanic, I think L.A. Confidential probably would have won Best Picture. It was nominated for nine Oscars. It was beloved. It was a huge hit, critically acclaimed. It's tale as old as time, though, with the Academy Awards. When there's that one movie that sort of oh, yeah. dominates it, there's that secondary movie where you're like, if this would have come out in a different year, I know. that would have been huge. Wonder Boys 2000, we did it twice on this fucking podcast. We obviously like it a lot. I just watched it again this week. It's like I watched it like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I love it more every time. I know. It's such a great movie. Yeah. And that... It speaks to Curtis Hansen and our sensibilities because clearly after L.A. Confidential, he was in a place where he could probably do whatever he wanted. I know. And that's what he wanted to do. And then the surprise of surprise, 2002, 8 Mile. You're like, huh? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it wouldn't shock me if that was like, his it's biggest weird. hit. So it's only like five years between L.A. Confidential and 8 Mile. Yeah. And it seems like those two things are worlds apart. Yeah. He lucked out. I guess he was the one that ends up doing 8 Mile, which was destined to be a huge movie. Totally. It's sort of hard to even explain, maybe, to people now. Yeah, Although, I, I guess Eminem's still kind of big, but... Yeah, but he was just a... It was like all a phenomenon. The, the song was huge. Yeah. I saw 8 Mile in the theater. Oh, yeah, same. I believe that's the only Curtis Hansen movie I saw in the theater. Yeah, it, definitely. Because the stuff that came after that, I think a movie In Her Shoes, maybe, and lucky you or something i don't know things that didn't really hit and he retired early due to alzheimer's then he passed away unfortunately i think it was a pretty cool run i like a lot of those movies yeah it's just a wide spectrum and they're all very different but there's like a craftsmanship to it this is a well-made movie totally confidential yeah there's a reason why i had nine academy award nominations obviously 
And I would say the same thing about Wonder Boys same. and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Eight Mile, I think I only saw once in the theater, so I can't speak to it. Although I remember liking it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Eight Mile is well-made and fun. It feels like this weird anomaly that stands on its own and is a very specific thing. But yeah. it is cool. All right, let's move along. Do you have any recommendations for us? No, because the only thing I watched recently was Wonder Boys. I don't really have anything new either. This won't be an official recommendation. I'm not going to play the Seinfeld clip, but since I mentioned we're going to do The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, you have a few months before we're probably going to get to it. So check out The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Check out Wonder Boys. Check out The Bedroom Window, 8 Mile. A lot of fun Curtis Hansen movies if you haven't seen them. All right, so thanks for listening. Follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. And from there, you can do a listener request through our cash app, which is in the tip jar. It's that weird little dollar icon on our Twitter profile. You'll figure it out. Yeah, if there's any issue, of course, just reach out through DMs or tweets. We're not really expecting a lot of people to do this, by the way. However, if you do want to just throw us a couple bucks... Out of the kindness of your heart, that would be appreciated. As I mentioned before, all of the money is probably going to be put back into podcast-related stuff. It's not like we're going to be taking that and going out and spending it or whatever. Equipment, We can finally uh, do that meetup event that we've been planning. (laughs) Don't say stuff like that. People don't understand (laughs) your sense of humor because it stinks. (laughs) It's not funny. Yeah, it's more depressing and yeah. sad. People are thinking, oh, they think they could do a meetup. Oh, no. <laughs> How sad that they think that. Shutting it off. It's become cringe listing. Yeah. They can't even go any further with it. Like, oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, from there, you can also let us know if you'd like a free sticker, and we'll send it out to you. And all that other good stuff, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you have not done so already. And Please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, never miss an episode. All of them are worth listening to. I don't know why people were not interested in Out of Sight, but... <laughs> I know. Really a dip. Well, An unexpected you know, one, really. I did it's not hard to follow The Godfather, but... Yeah, but even to get outshined by Videodrome I so know. fast. A movie that felt very obscure. Tell me about to some it. people. Well, but whatever. That's okay. It'll find its audience at some point. Yeah, people were like, we're not interested in George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. No, thank you. (laughs) It's a bad take. If you'd like to, you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. And if you follow us from the show, let us know and we'll follow you back and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Either on Twitter or put a comment on one of our reviews or something to say, hey, love the podcast or whatever. Whatever you got to say and then we'll, we'll hit you back with that follow. Am I missing anything? No, I think you've covered it all. Any questions about the listener request, just hit us up on Twitter. We'll get it all straightened out or whatever. Who cares? Yeah. This was so much work for something that no one is ever going to want to (laughs) do. If we leave these rules in place for six years, (laughs) at that point, we'll get some interest. What year is this? 2023? Yeah. Well, if we go six years, we might as well just go to 2030. Okay, yeah. Right. (laughs) But sometime around then is where this will start getting interest. <laughs> Imagine we're doing this podcast in 2030. <laughs> it's gonna, probably going to happen. <laughs> I'll almost be 50 years old. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> in this apartment. <laughs> 
We're doing Wonder Boys Revisited. It's just again. Like, by that point, I'm having to like swim through physical media to like get to the. Couch. <laughs> no, I will have gotten another apartment next door just for the physical media. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week. Keep it rolling. And we'll talk to you soon. Me, me, Frank, me, the coolest guy in the history of this goddamn school. Oh, they're all gonna pay. They're all gonna pay the ultimate prize. Whoa! Oh. Dude, what's all that stuff you're grabbing? Tools! Tools! Duct tape, zip ties, and gloves! I have to have my tools! Well, why do you have a bunch of, like, weird tools in a hidden compartment in your car? Fetish, fetish shit! I, 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 I like to bind, I like to be bound! I got... Uh, that's not important. Don't ask me questions. I'm not taking questions. The Golden God is not taking questions. I am the Golden God. I, I'm taking action. I gotta go. I gotta whoa, go. Whoa, 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 who